Well, this morning we uh, continue our sermon series entitled, What Jesus Looks For in a Church, which is a study of Christ's messages to the seven churches in Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3. This morning we come to the seventh church, the church in Laodicea. Uh, The scripture reference is Revelation 3 verses 14 through 22. And I have called this church the church, sadly, who made Jesus sick. And you'll see what uh, I mean by that as we walk through this message. If you picked up a copy of the sermon notes, you see there just a very brief review. Uh, The title of this series has been What Jesus Looks For in a Church. And uh, in our review of the first six churches, I've just sort of summarized what we discovered he is looking for, what we want to give him. And now many of these churches, you'll remember, uh, demonstrated this by failing to give this to Jesus, Uh, but this is what we have learned so far. far. Uh, Church of Ephesus, that which is the most important thing, Christ desires to be our first love, our greatest passion and pursuit. He wants to be preeminent uh, in each one of our individual lives and in our church family uh, to where Christ would have no rival in our hearts. There would never be any refusal of Christ, and there would be no retreat from what He's called us to do. Church of Smyrna, we saw that He's looking for faithfulness in suffering. Uh, when we encounter adversity or persecution, that we would uh, remain faithful to Christ because it's faithfulness and suffering that demonstrates our love for Christ because you're only willing to suffer for that which you value. And then in Pergamum, uh, we discovered that he's looking for an uncompromising obedience uh, to God's Word. Thyatira, we discovered he's looking for growth, spiritual growth in the beauty of moral purity and holiness, to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, for Him to be formed in us, to be displayed through us as a church. In the church at Sardis, which was a pretty sad uh, situation, if you remember, he is looking for honesty. He's looking for humility. He's looking for spiritual authenticity. He hates hypocrisy, and he wants us to... uh, uh, be truly transparent before him. Then Philadelphia, wonderful, we saw a little church, uh, a church that he commended like none of the other seven churches. Matter of fact, he has no word of rebuke for them at all, but we discovered there Jesus is looking for a bold faith in our church, in our lives, a faith that seizes every opportunity to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in the church of Laodicea to, to the, this morning, we'll see he's looking for wholeheartedness. Uh, sadly, a quality that uh, this church did not give uh, to the Lord uh, Jesus. So uh, please follow along in your notes. We want to jump right into the uh, material and we'll look at this uh, passage as we walk through it. And we want to begin by looking at the Lord's diagnosis of the uh, church in Laodicea. And the first thing that we see, sadly, is a sickening complacency. So we're looking at the Lord's diagnosis of the church in Laodicea, and the first thing that He points out, He goes right to rebuke, 
is a sickening complacency. Look at Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 15 and 16. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The word translated cold uh, means cold to the point of freezing. Uh, You could say icy cold. Uh, The word in the Greek translated hot uh, means hot to the point of boiling. So you could say boiling hot. Uh, Lukewarm, of course, means neither cold nor hot, uh, but tepid. The cold heart represents those who reject Christ. The gospel leaves them unmoved. It evokes no spiritual response. They completely withhold their hearts from Christ. The hot heart represents those who are spiritually alive and possess the enthusiasm of a transformed life. Their whole heart belongs to Christ and they live for God's glory. What does it mean to be lukewarm? We'll get this down in your notes. To lack wholeheartedness and devotion to Christ reflected in a superficial commitment to Christ. Lukewarmness means to lack wholeheartedness in devotion to Christ, which is reflected in a superficial commitment to Christ. In Matthew uh, chapter 15, verses 7 through 9, uh, Jesus described a lukewarm heart very well. He said, you hypocrites, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. It's a sham. There's no reality in it. So the lukewarm represents those who have not rejected the gospel, but they try to embrace the blessings of Christianity without surrendering to the Lord of Christianity. They see God as a means to get what they want instead of realizing they are to be God's means to achieve His will. This half-hearted commitment results in apathy, complacency, indifference to the things of God. You can put them in the church or you can put them in the world. It makes absolutely no difference. They just as easily fit in anywhere, having no impact for God. You know, there's a great example of this in the book of uh, Ezekiel. Uh, In Ezekiel 33, the people say, come now and hear what the message is which comes from the Lord. And they're referring to the prophet Ezekiel and his preaching and his teaching. So the children of Israel said, come now, let's go and let's let's hear the prophet. Let's hear his preaching and his teaching. But this is what God says about them. He says, and they come. They do. Yes, they do come. And they sit before you, Ezekiel. As my people, they sit before you as my people, but they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. And behold, you, the prophet, you are to like them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, 
For they hear your words, but do not practice them. That's a lukewarm heart. And now going back to the church in Laodicea, please notice the one thing Jesus cannot stomach is half-heartedness. You cannot be neutral with Jesus. It is either all or it is nothing. Notice what Jesus said in verse 16. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The word spit is emeo in the Greek, and it literally means, and excuse me for saying this, but this is the literal translation in the Greek text. It literally means to vomit. Jesus is saying, lukewarm Christianity nauseates me. It makes me sick. And I will spew it out of my mouth because it is a contradiction to everything authentic Christianity is to be. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. G. Campbell Morgan, great Bible teacher of yesteryear, referring to the church said, lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. Lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. John Stott, another great, great Bible teacher, wrote, if he, Jesus, is true, if he is the Son of God who became a human being, died for our sins, and was raised from death, if Christmas Day, Good Friday, and Easter Day are more than meaningless anniversaries, then nothing less than our wholehearted commitment to Christ will do. This means we will put him first in our private and public life, seeking his glory and obeying his will. Better be icy in our indifference or go into active opposition to him than insult him with an insipid compromise which nauseates him. Some churches make Jesus smile. Others make him weep. Laodicea made him sick. Sick with their lukewarmness. Sick with their complacency. But not only sickening complacency, Jesus also diagnosed them, look at that second point, with blind conceit. Blind conceit. Look at Revelation 3, verse 17. Because you say, referring to the church members, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Would you please circle those two phrases, the one right at the beginning of the verse, you say, and then a little bit further down, you are. So circle that. You say, and then circle the phrase, you are. Because, folks, many times there's a big difference between what you say and what you are. And that's what Jesus is pointing out here. Uh, So what does it mean to be lukewarm? It means to be blind, to one's true spiritual condition. And that was the situation here, the church in Laodicea. They were totally blind to their spiritual condition, as you see. They claimed to be rich spiritually, wealthy spiritually, in need of nothing. 
And in reality, Christ said, no, here's reality. I know what you really are. And spiritually, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. See, the lukewarm person is someone whom there's a glaring inconsistency between what he says he is and what he really is. I mean, this person can talk Christianity. He knows the lingo. He can put on a good front, but he does not walk the talk. Like back in Ezekiel, they listen to your words, but they do not practice them, Ezekiel. He becomes complacent. The lukewarm person becomes complacent, thinking, thinking he has his ticket to heaven. And no one is more surprised than he is when he is denied entrance to heaven and banished to hell. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21, 23. Jesus is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many, circle that word many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we, and then whatever it might be, you know, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, don't miss this, I never knew you. Never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It is important to see the larger context of these verses. Earlier in chapter 7, to be specific, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus mentions two gates, a small gate and a wide gate. Jesus tells us the small gate opens to a very narrow road. And he says very, very few people travel that road. And then the wide gate, he says, opens to a very broad road. And he says many follow that road. Now, the most important truth to see throughout this entire section, and, most, and many people miss this, Jesus is not contrasting Christianity with paganism. He's contrasting authentic Christianity with a counterfeit Christianity. Both gates are marked this way to heaven. And both roads claim that they will bring you to heaven. But tragically, the many who travel the broad road are surprised. They are horrified when at the end of the road, it's not heaven but hell. And this is what Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, is describing. Look again at the verses. Look again at them in your notes. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you who practice lawlessness. Notice, what's the two primary characteristics of these individuals who thought they had their ticket to heaven? Number one, they never submitted to Jesus as Lord. And number two, their life was never transformed because he said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. So they never submitted to Jesus as Lord and their lives were never touched, transformed. They never had a dynamic 
miraculous encounter with God. They never really experienced the new birth and that transformed life. So we have sickening complacency, blind conceit, and the third characteristic of being lukewarm, which he diagnoses them with, is a tragic, Christless condition. That's that third point, a tragic, Christless condition. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Notice, where is Christ in relationship to this church? He's outside the church. He's outside their lives and hearts. He's seeking to gain entrance. So what does it mean to be lukewarm? Get this down again in your notes. To profess Christ while failing to possess Him. To profess Him with your mouth like we saw in Matthew 7. Many will say, Lord, Lord to me on that day. So it's to profess Christ while failing to possess Him. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, we read, Holding, holding to a form, an external form of godliness, although they have denied its power. They've denied the very essence of true Christianity being an encounter with God that transforms the life. And you ask, how can this happen? How can this happen? Well, let's go back to the many deceived people who travel the broad road believing they're going to heaven while in reality they end up in hell. These are the many in our churches, in our churches, who give intellectual assent to the truths about Christ, but in their hearts they have never repented of sin to follow Christ. They try to receive Jesus as Savior for forgiveness of sins to go to heaven, but without repenting from sin and surrendering to Jesus as Lord. In his book, I Surrender, Patrick Morley wrote, the church's integrity problem is in the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. George Barna, the, uh, the researcher in, in religious and ethic matters, summarized the problem this way. Now, he's talking about the baby boomer generation, but this not only applies to the baby boomers, it can apply to many. He says, at heart, boomers are consumers. The way we presented Christ to most boomers struck a resonant chord with them from that mindset. We told them all they had to do was to uh, pray a prayer, admitting they made some mistakes, they're sorry, and they want to be forgiven. Boomers weighed the downside, which really amounted to nothing more than a one-time admission of imperfection and weakness in return for permanent peace with God and figured it was a no-brainer, a can't-lose transaction. The consequences has been millions of boomers who said the prayer, asked forgiveness, and went on with their life with virtually nothing changed. Charles Spurgeon wrote, If a man does not live differently from what he did before, his repentance needs to be repented of, and his conversion is a fiction. J.I. Packer summed it up very well. Simple assent to the gospel. Divorced from a transforming commitment to the living Christ is by biblical standards less than faith and less than saving, and to elicit only assent of this kind would be to secure only false conversions. 
Bottom line, the true gift of salvation is the person of Jesus. And Jesus is Savior and Lord. You cannot receive Him as Savior without bowing Him to Him as Lord. The angels announced at the birth of Christ, Luke 2 verse 11, there has been born for you a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord? Who is the Savior? Christ the Lord. Jesus, on numerous occasions during His earthly ministry, made statements like found in Luke 9, verses 23, 24, and 25. And He was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself. There's repentance. And take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. In other words, will surrender it, will abandon it to me. But whoever loses his life for my sake, surrenders his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what, is a man, what if a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 10, verses 9 through 13, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord! And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. He humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Apostle John put it about as simply as you can put it. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them, he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, that glorious name, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12, John wrote, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. But the point is, you receive all of Him or you receive none of Him. You cannot divide Jesus up. I'm going to take the Savior part, but I don't want the Lord part. You take him for who he is, and he's Savior and Lord. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot receive him as Savior and at the same time refuse him as Lord. So we've looked at the Lord's diagnosis of this lukewarm church in Laodicea. We've seen their sickening complacency, blind conceit, and a tragic, Christless condition. Now look at the Lord's prescription for the church in Laodicea, because the Lord loves. He doesn't want them to remain in that lukewarm uh, condition where they're blinded uh, to their lostness. And so, 
for the sickening complacency you see there, Jesus prescribes verse 19. He says, those whom I love, isn't that wonderful? Although this church nauseated him, made him sick, he still loves them. Even in their lost condition. He says, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, what does it mean to repent? And this is important for us to stress just for a moment. You must turn away from all sin to follow Jesus with the motive to please him. Real repentance, real repentance is much more than having good intentions. It's a change in direction. It is a very intentional and purposeful decision to forsake the pleasures of sin to live for the pleasure of God. Now, this is not in your sermon notes, but let me give you three characteristics of true biblical repentance. Number one, real repentance begins with a change of thinking. A change of thinking, especially about sin. James 4, verses 8 through 10 reads, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. See, in real repentance, a person begins to see his sinful condition the way God sees it. And he begins to say about his sin what God says about it. In true repentance, there's no minimizing of sin. There's no excusing of sin. There's no justifying of sin. In true repentance, you're not grieving the fact that you got caught. You're not merely grieving the consequences of your sin, but you're grieving, you're mourning over the fact that your heart is corrupt at its very core, that you are infected by sin. The Apostle Paul captured this sentiment very well in Romans 7 when he said, Wretched man that I am, you become deeply repulsed by the sin you once indulged in with pleasure. And you desire not only to be freed from sin's guilt, but to be freed from sin's hold on you. Thomas Watson wrote, Would you know when you have been humbled enough for your sin? I'll read the question again. He said, Would you know when you would have been humbled enough for your sin? When you are willing to let go of your sin. It is this godly sorrow over one's sinful condition that causes a person to cry out to the only source and hope for deliverance. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The second characteristic of true repentance is that it is accompanied by a turning, a turning. Listen to Lamentations chapter 3, verses 39 and 40. Why should we, mere humans, complain when we are punished for sin? Instead, let us test and examine our ways. Let us turn back to the Lord. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and God will have compassion on him. In Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, And you will perish too, 
unless you repent of your sin and turn to God. And of course, you're repenting of sin and turning to Him for what? For salvation. Realizing that He died on the cross to cancel your sin debt out. He rose again to impute His righteousness to your account. That it's not by works that we have done, but it's by His grace that we're saved. Acts 3, verses 19 and 20. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. And then 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. I've always loved this verse. Referring to the Thessalonians coming to know Christ. He says, you turn to God from idols to serve a true and living God. So real repentance is characterized by turning from sin to Christ, to receive forgiveness and follow Him. And then third, real repentance results in transformation. When there's true repentance and a turning to God and an encounter with God in the new birth, there is transformation. Matthew 3, 8, John the Baptist said, Prove, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. In Matthew 7, 16, Jesus said, you will know them by their what? Fruits. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old things are passing away. Behold, all things are becoming new. So when Christ called the church in Laodicea to repent, it was a call to own up to their lost condition and experience true salvation. And this becomes even clearer in the next point. Look at the second point. For blind conceit, Jesus prescribes Verse 18, look at verse 18. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. It's fascinating what Jesus does in this verse. Christ's threefold offer of gold, white garments, and eye salve played on the three features of the city of Laodicea that they were most famous for and most proud of. The city was a wealthy banking center. It was one of the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire with much, much gold. It also had a great, tremendous wool industry where they produced white garments and they produced in the city a very popular, widely used ISAV that was uh, throughout the, used throughout the Roman Empire. So Christ used figures that they were very familiar with to draw an analogy, to offer them spiritual gold, spiritual clothes, and spiritual eyesight. It's also important not to miss the emphasis in verse 18 on Christ's words, from me, from me. In their blind conceit, the Laodiceans considered themselves as needing nothing. That's what he said early about them. You, you believe you don't need anything in your blind conceit. Therefore, what he's saying is, you have to admit your need. You have to admit that it's great. You have to admit that I'm the only source that can meet that need. In essence, Jesus was saying, you must confess that you are wretched, that you are miserable, poor, blind, naked, and that salvation is only from me. There is no other way, no other source. And then notice there in your notes, 
they're poor. But Jesus has gold. That's a restoration of spiritual values, spiritual wealth. They're naked, but Jesus has clothes, white garments of righteousness and purity. There's the restoration of spiritual virtues. And they're blind, but Jesus had ISAV, restoration of spiritual vision. Now for their tragic Christless condition, look at what Jesus prescribes. Very well-known verse, verse 20, for behold, I stand at the door and I knock. I love this, if anyone, if anyone in this church, even if it's just a saint, if anyone in this church, you hear my voice and, and open the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. What an amazing invitation that he extends to them out of his love. Here's a church that literally has sickened him in their lukewarmness, in their conceit, totally blind that they're lost, yet he has this love for them. He wants them to be brought out of that deceit, to see their true spiritual condition, and turn to him, the only source of salvation. So he extends this incredible invitation that although you've pushed me out, I'm not in your life, I'm not in this church, I desire to get in. I'm knocking. I'm knocking. You know, I'll never, I'll never forget, uh, you know, we just had the Pregnancy Center Conference uh, some years ago. We were working with a young couple. It was a real tragic situation, uh, almost hard to believe. Uh, but this, this young couple had been living together since he was 13 and the girl was 12. Um, if I remember right, I think it was uh, her parents, either both were in jail or in prison, and his parents were just totally neglecting their parental responsibilities. And then 13 and 12, they came together just to try to find some sense of fulfillment, meaning, guidance, direction. And when they came to us, uh, I believe he was 17 and she was 16. Uh, they had been living in a car. And, uh, and, to be very, and to be very transparent with you about the testimony, uh, the most, the greatest challenge that the counselors initially had down at Sound Choices when the couple came in was just simply staying in the room with them because the smell was so bad. Uh, it, it was just, it, it, it was just bad. It just make you gag. Uh, but all we knew to do was try to love them as Jesus would love them. Uh, she was pregnant. She was actually in her second trimester. She was looking for an abortion. Um, as the folks down at the pregnancy center ministered to her, uh, and he was with her, uh, very dramatically turned from abortion uh, to choose life. 
Well, of course, that's not when our ministry ended. That's when it just began with this couple, with the tremendous needs that they had. And make a long story short, we were able to help them secure a little small trailer. We helped the man find work. We began to deal with them from a biblical perspective on morality and about Christ and about their relationship and marriage. They were married, uh, and, uh, and we, we were still ministering to them. And uh, this doesn't happen a lot in this area of ministry, uh, but uh, uh, his name was, and I have permission to sh- share their names. His name was Glenn. Her name was Donna. They actually invited Kathy and I over to their little apartment uh, to have dinner to express the appreciation for what our church and the Sound Choices Ministry had done for them. And, um, and I'll be very honest with you, uh, when I showed up at the trailer, it, it was just a, you can't imagine how tiny this little trailer was. Uh, you, you would walk in, just a tiny little kitchen, tiny little one little bathroom, and then basically a, a little tiny bedroom, and then it's one sort of like family, but it wasn't, it wasn't large at all. And they just had enough room for, to put up a little card table. And uh, that's, that's where, we, where we ate. Uh, also, the odd thing about this trailer, and it was very, very odd. They did not do this. When they rented it, they got it this way. Literally over every square inch of wall space, there were pictures. And the pictures made no rhyme or reason. I mean, I'm talking about literally pictures hung on the wall from the baseboard all the way to the ceiling. And some of them were square frames, round frames, oval frames, triangle frames. I mean, there were nature pictures, uh, animal pictures, building pe- pictures, people pictures, modern art. I mean, you went, you went in there, and it just sort of disoriented you, you know, and you, 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 you went in. So we sit down to eat, and, and it was very touching. They, they actually bought steak. Uh, they didn't know how to prepare the steak. So it was very tough, made for a long meal, a lot of good fellowship, a lot of good talking, but it was very, very sweet what they were doing. And I'll never forget this little card table. I, I was here, and there was a wall right behind me. Glenn was sitting right here. Kathy was right across from me, and then Donna. And, uh, and we've had the meal, and we've been sharing, and then all of a sudden, Don, uh, Glenn literally it says, Andy, brother, can you tell me what that picture means right there? I said, I wonder what door he's pointing at. And I turned around, and you've all seen it. It, it, was, it was the picture depicting Revelation 3.20, the picture of Jesus standing outside of a door knocking. And if you know, it was a German artist that uh, painted the picture. And if you know anything about the picture, there's no doorknob what? On the outside. The picture depicts Jesus knocks, he, he, he's, extend, he's wanting in, desiring entrance, but uh, we have to make that decision through repentance and faith to open the door, invite him in uh, to dine with us, to live with us, uh, to change our lives. And I had the wonderful privilege of uh, knew the story of the painting, started there, and then presented the gospel. And the gospel had been presented to them before, but that night, uh, both uh, Glenn and Donna came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, 
and it was such a wonderful thing uh, to see. And as we close, notice, if anyone hears my voice. I mean, if you're lost here today, maybe you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're lost, like Glenn and Donna knew without a shadow. Maybe you, you would be like the church of Laodicea, and there are many within the Western church today, especially in the church in America, that think they have their ticket to heaven, but they've really never had a transforming encounter with Christ because they have fallen to this notion that I can receive Him as Savior for forgiveness and get my ticket to heaven while refusing to submit to Him as Lord. And again, I'm here this morning to tell you that yes, salvation is a gift, but that gift is Jesus. And you can't not divide the gift that God offers you. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. And you must receive Him for who He is and what He did for you. Would you bow your head in prayer with me, please? Let me give you an opportunity just for a few moments just to, uh, I, would, I would ask you to ask God to evaluate your life. I would pray that you would not want to remain in the condition that the Laodicean church found themselves in if, if that's where you are. I would pray that you'd be very, very thankful that if God opened your heart today to see your true spiritual condition and to see that He does love you and that He is knocking on the door of your heart, that He does desire you to open that door and invite Him in as you would forsake your sin, turn to Him to receive Him as Savior and Lord. So again, I'll just give you a few moments just to ask God to put His spotlight on you, that if you know Christ, that He would give you that assurance that you do know Him, and pray that God would give you a hot heart for Him, a hot heart that would be boiling hot, fervent heart for Him to live for His glory. But if you do not know Him, you would accept his invitation as he knocks and invite him in to be your Savior, to be your Lord. Father, as we look at Jesus, who He is, His infinite mercy and what He did for us on Calvary's cross and through His resurrection, Lord, how can we not realize the simplicity, 
that Jesus is worthy of all that we are and all that we possess. Our whole heart. And Lord, I pray that you would be that power at work in us here at Edgewood, in every life, that we would be that hot believer, that believer that would be boiling hot for you, that would have a fervent spirit towards you, that we would have the enthusiasm of a transformed life, committed to live for your glory in both our private lives and our public lives. And then, Lord, we have to acknowledge, especially in the church in the West, and especially the church in America, Lord, we realize there has been, whatever you want to call it, uh, so often an easy believism that has been preached, sort of just a superficial gospel, where it's all about just getting your ticket to heaven, but there's no encounter with you, there's no new birth, there's no transformation. We have this notion that we can receive you as Savior while refusing you as Lord. And Lord, forgive us for that silliness, for that blindness, for that awful conceit to think that you would let your son be dishonored that way, that you would allow your son who gave his all in honor first to you, in obedience to you, and out of his love for us, forgive us for ever thinking that we would allow, that you would allow your son to be shamed in such a way that we would come to him with half-hearted commitment thinking that could be accepted. So we acknowledge that he is worthy of all that we are and all that we possess. Uh, Lord, open our eyes uh, to see him, to see his beauty, uh, to, and as we see that beauty, to be willing to forsake all, uh, to follow him, uh, to embrace him, to put our trust in him. Lord, we acknowledge that you alone are the source of salvation. And uh, we're totally dependent upon you. That it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but it's by your grace that we're saved. And that's a gift, but that gift is in Jesus. He that hath the Son hath life, but he that hath not the Son hath not life. So, Lord, help us see we have to receive him as he is. We cannot divide him, that we would honor him as we receive him as Savior, to follow him as our Lord, and to honor you in all things. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.